Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Christopher Thompson. Joining me in the studio this week are Laura Noonan, the FT's investment banking correspondent, Emma Dunkley, who covers retail banks, and Caroline Binham, our specialist on financial regulation. In London, we'll be speaking to Eric Leenders. He's the executive director for retail banking with the British Bankers Association. And from New York, we have our U.S. banking editor, Ben McClanahan, speaking to Glenn Goldman. He's the chief executive of small business lender Credibly. This week, we'll be discussing the UK Competition and Market Authority's long-awaited report into the state of retail banking. Also, the decision by the Royal Bank of Scotland to abandon the separation of small and medium business lender Williams & Glynn. And how European investment banks have underperformed their US rivals once again in the second quarter. On Tuesday, the UK's Competition and Markets Authority released a long-awaited report into the state of retail banking, which, among other things, addressed the very high unplanned overdraft charges and also the ease of customers switching their current accounts. To discuss this is Emma Dunkley and Caroline Binham. And with us on the line is Eric Landers, Executive Director for Retail with the British Bankers Association. Emma, I'll start with you. What did the report say that we didn't already know? Well, it's taken two years and cost about £5 million to make. And admittedly, their final measures that they're going to impose upon banks follows on from proposals that they outlined a couple of months ago. So there isn't much new in there today. Essentially, what they've said is they found there's a lack of competition in the market, largely because it's dominated by the big four high street banks. So what they're proposing is to make charges clearer and information on bank services clearer in the view that customers will then move banks. As part of this, they're improving the bank switching service and they're also allowing banks to impose a cap, this is their own level and their own limit, on the overdraft charges that they can levy. So this has faced some criticism because people are saying, well, surely there should be an industry-wide cap upon unarranged overdraft fees, but instead the CMA is just allowing the banks to set their own limits. Another measure that it's taken, which the CMA is is trumpeting today, is something called open banking, which is where banks will be forced to share customers' data with their consent to other banks and third parties. The idea being that customers can use mobile apps and they will have tailored solutions and tailored current account offerings to help them find the best deal in the market. And Caroline, was this all a tremendous waste of time or money? Because what is policymakers' record of actually you know, instigating some kind of change in markets such as banking, which, as as Emma pointed out, the biggest four banks have a kind of overwhelming market share. Well, it's pretty slim, to be honest. The CMA and its predecessor, the Office of Fair Trading, have been looking at retail banking and overdrafts in one form or another for nearly a decade now. And we've seen very little real change as a result. 
And one could also draw an analogy to the energy market that the CMA also recently looked at without delivering any great structural change. What I would point out is that obviously the competition authorities do not operate in a vacuum. And in the last couple of years, they've been looking at a sector that has already been subject to at least two other major inquiries since the financial crisis. And one of those, the Vickers Commission, did propose widespread structural change in the form of ring fencing. So there was always going to be a limit to what the CMA could do, particularly when you take into account that two of the four largest high street retailers are still partly government owned. I mean, I think one element that I would draw out is that the CMA is stressing the need for lenders to embrace fintech and get customers using apps more to be updated about overdraft charges and the like. And I think that's quite interesting when you think that the Financial Conduct Authority, the financial regulator, is also doing quite a lot in the fintech space. The UK is already considered one of the most avant-garde regulatory environments in the world for fintech. So I just wonder whether this might be another catalyst for banks to embrace more fintech change. And on the subject of fintech, Emma, what kind of concerns are there about data security? on the behalf of customers, because we've seen hacking people's account details and so on getting stolen. I had my own account details stolen not that long ago. Well, this is indeed a concern that has been raised by some consumer groups. Obviously, the prospect of banks allowing your data to be shared by other third parties, which can include startup fintech firms, is actually quite disconcerting because you're just not sure about their security processes and whether they've been tried or tested, especially some of these fledgling companies. However, it should be stressed that data can only be shared with consumers' consent. And obviously, this measure by the CMA, banks will have to comply with that by 2018. So this is going to be a lot of work for them to ensure that their systems and their security processes are up to scratch, given that, let's face it, they've had quite a few issues with their technology platforms over the past few years. If I could turn to you now, Eric, how much is this report going to change the retail banking landscape in the UK? Well, I guess there's two sides to that. I think the first thing I would say is it's quite clear the CMA has taken a look at how we might bank four or five years hence and has tried to reflect that in its remedies and recommendations. And I think we see that as very welcome. It goes with the grain of innovation and it's absolutely what customers want, focusing and centering around mobile banking, for example. But there is always a but in these things. And I think that whilst recognising that the challenger bank and the newer bank community are facing perhaps slightly different challenges in their own right around capital and liquidity, the CMA has rather passed the baton to Treasury, PRA and others. And I think they would say they would have liked a little bit more proof positive of change to help them level the playing field. So this is not going to level the playing field for challenger banks as far as you see it? Of course, anything that encourages shopping around, anything that encourages customers to consider an alternative bank to the one that they currently bank with will help. But actually, the fundamentals around capital requirements around standardised versus IRB weights, for example, haven't been addressed. And that is obviously germane to pricing and therefore the sustainable competitiveness of the challenger banks. And that, I think, would have been their primary interest when they started to read this report this morning. So as far as you're concerned, it's still the case if you have scale in the British retail market, that's what matters. 
Well, certainly that scale affords you the ability to use internalized risk weights as opposed to the standardized weights. That gives you an innate capital advantage. And that's what the challenger banks, I think, would like to see addressed as the priority. The CMA also considered the tax requirements on banks, the levy and the bank corporation tax surcharge, and noted that the Treasury had a close-watching brief. Again, I think the challengers would like to see the Treasury absolutely reflect the disproportionate effect, potentially, that certainly the corporation tax surcharge might have. But we must come back to the fact that, from a consumer's perspective, Focusing remedies around the way we want to do our banking increasingly going forwards is a very sensible and pragmatic step. Thank you, Eric. And staying on the hot subject of UK retail banking, last week, Royal Bank of Scotland, when it announced its interim results, another multi-billion pound loss, also said that it would not be separating Williams & Glynn, the small and medium business lender that it owns. Emma, how surprising was this and why have they taken this decision? It's not that much of a surprise. Royal Bank of Scotland have been attempting to carve this small business-focused and retail-focused bank out of itself since 2009, and they've faced numerous delays and numerous technological complications along the way. The main issue has been the fact that they have to extricate Williams & Glynn off of its own systems while also creating a new technology platform for Williams & Glynn. This involves numerous people, hundreds of processes, and it's been subject to many, many delays. And hundreds of millions of pounds in cost. £1.5 billion to date, so uh, this is taxpayers' money being used here. It's eventually come out and said that now it recognises the task is too risky and too costly, and so therefore... The process of carving it out as a standalone bank with a separate licence with a view to listing it on the London Stock Exchange has now been ditched. And instead what they're planning to do is sell the assets and 300 branches to a rival bank. But the management, Chief Executive Ross McEwen, also gave a new reason for this thinking. He said that with the lower for longer interest rate environment, smaller banks that lack scale will come under pressure and therefore they cannot carve it out as a viable standalone entity. And this broadly, this decision by RBS was seen as positive. It was taken that way by the market. Get rid of this thing as soon as possible. Let's get it off our books and move on. Exactly. It's an overhang that's played the bank for a number of years. So now the fact that they finally said it will no longer plug resources in terms of manpower and more expenses into this has been regarded as positive. The bank also confirmed that it's in preliminary talks with a number of interested parties, inverted commas, and there's been some speculation that Santander UK could be interested in snapping up the assets, which would mark the second time that this bank has attempted to buy Williams & Glynn following a failed attempt in 2012, which ironically was based on IT complications. In your opinion, should this decision just have been made years ago, sell the assets rather than try and hive it off? It's something that Lloyd's Bank did with TSB. Rather than sell off the assets, what they did is a transition services arrangement whereby they carved out TSB and allowed it to use its own IT systems. This seems an arguably more effective approach, which perhaps RBS could have done. However, the bank argues that it took the best means and process it thought necessary at the time to remove Williams and Glynn. Thank you, Emma.
We'll move on now to how European investment banks did compared with their U.S. rivals during the second quarter. In some, not particularly well. Laura Noonan, our investment banking correspondent, is going to tell us why. Laura. Yeah, so in the second quarter, we saw the continuation of a theme really we've seen play out over the last number of years of the European investment banks really losing out compared to their US peers. If we take the second quarter and we take investment banking revenues and also the revenues from sales and from trading, the five big US banks increased their revenues in the quarter by 3.4% versus a year earlier, which isn't a huge increase. But if you look at that compared to the 17.5% fall we saw across the big European investment banks, you can really see that the gulf is actually widening. And this is, I guess, the continuation of the overall trend. But you also now have people asking, when is this going to end? And when are we going to get to the stage where things level off? Because we can't expect the Europeans to fall relative to the US indefinitely. So we're in a situation now when, in fact, the biggest European investment banks are what, predominantly now American? Well, the biggest investment banks operating in Europe would definitely be US. And the US have been dominating really even the Europe, Middle East and Africa league tables for the last couple of years. I think what we're seeing is a combination of a couple of things. So in the second quarter, the US market overall was a better investment banking market. And the US banks would unsurprisingly have a bigger exposure to the US market than the European market. Then when you come over to Europe, the US banks are just attacking from a position of dominance because they have a much healthier home market that puts them in a better position to compete in international markets. When you look at the big European banks and by the big European banks for this study, we include Barclays, Credit Suisse, Deutsche Bank and UBS. A lot of those, with the exception of UBS, have been going through a lot of internal strategic change. And that has seen them focus on their big picture strategies more than probably on the day-to-day business of actually minding the house and getting deals and those kind of things. So some of the executives at those big European banks say that they are going to build on their position and they say that they have been distracted recently by some of the big picture existential questions facing their institutions, but that once they have a better control of those, they'll be turning their attention to the core business again and that they expect to grow from their current base. And on those existential questions... Do you get a sense that the outlook for investment banks in Europe is any better going into the second half of the year than it has been for the past six months? It depends how you look at it. If we look at the year-on-year comparisons, things should definitely improve. That isn't because the market has been picking up. That's just because they had a fairly tough second half last year. So the year-on-year comparisons become easier. When you think about the market overall, I mean, all the signs from the US market are pretty good. From the European market, it's still quite hard to tell on the Brexit impact because we had basically Brexit, then we had a quiet July, we have a dead August as we always do. So it's only going to be in September we really see to what extent Brexit has companies putting the brakes on deals. I mean, we hear two lines of argument there. One is that people are going to effectively defer taking any actions while they see how the whole Brexit situation unfolds. The other is that it's going to take such a terribly long time for the right situation to unfold. I mean, it could take three to five years by some people's reckoning that people simply cannot wait that long. Therefore, they will carry out deals anyway. There's also a line of thought that basically because the pound has basically come down against so many other currencies, there are going to be bargains to be had in the UK. That may spur some activity, but we'll really see all that playing out coming into the second half of the year. In the US, we also have the US presidential elections, which could impact activity and business opportunities over there. And then Asia was one of the weak points for the first half of the year. We don't really know how that's going to shape up for H2, but it will certainly be important. Thank you, Laura. 
And for our final segment this week, we have our U.S. banking editor, Ben McClanahan. He has been speaking to Glenn Goldman, who is the chief executive of small business lender Credibly. Glenn, welcome. Since launching a little under two years ago, Credibly has supplied about $300 million of loans to more than 6,000 small businesses. You joined one of those early movers in online lending, Can Capital, way back in 2001, 14, 15 years on. What stage are we, would you say, in the evolution of the online lending industry? I would say that we're still in the early innings. And I say that for a few reasons. Number one is notwithstanding the incredible amount of innovation and disruption that we had the opportunity to exercise in building out Can Capital. The fact is, is that we are doing things today that are actually quite extraordinary in relation to what we thought was quite extraordinary 10 years ago at Can Capital. Mm -hmm. But even beyond that, there is still a really big problem to solve. And that really big problem is that small businesses continue to have a difficult time accessing capital. So the big problem that's available for all of us to solve in more creative and innovative ways remains. Let's talk about some of the threats that are piling up for the online lenders. Lending Club, of course, the former sector darling. Its share price tells the story there. It's more than halved since that governance scandal um, a few months ago. You've got regulators seemingly competing with each other to devise ever tougher frameworks for regulation. And you've got some of the big buyers of the loans, like banks and hedge funds, beginning to ask questions now, especially as defaults start picking up amongst the riskiest segments. So put all that together, (laughs) does it look pretty bleak out there? Interestingly, we can almost turn the clock back I don't know, maybe call it seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years, and frame that question almost identically and be talking about the online music space where the method of music delivery was being disrupted. Many of those businesses, most were funded by VC and private equity funds. Most were not making money. Mm-hmm. There were a lot of regulatory and legal questions about who owned what rights to what music. And like today, there were probably a couple of hundred different platforms all delivering music in different ways. Now, eventually what happened is we ended up with where we are today. There are maybe a dozen or so of these platforms that have materially changed the way that we access music. And we're all thrilled about that. Mm -hmm. And the fact that we went from 200 to maybe a dozen or so of those platforms didn't change the value proposition. And I think we're seeing something very similar here. Notwithstanding the fact that we are at a point where there is a reasonable level of regulatory scrutiny, notwithstanding the fact that, let's just say, the incredible amount of growth puts stress on any number of different of the infrastructure elements of all of these platforms, the value proposition, the use case hasn't changed. Notwithstanding all of those things, those in the consumer finance space have helped lower the cost of debt for millions and millions of Americans and those throughout the world. This is an international business. Mm -hmm. Those in the small business space have delivered capital to small businesses who otherwise never would have gotten access to capital, also measured in the billions of dollars. And so while the face or the structure of the industry is going to change, the use case and the value proposition is here to stay. To extend that music analogy, at the time you had the big majors fighting back quite incompetently, it looks, at least in hindsight. This time you've got the big banks that have observed the growth of the industry over the past couple of years. And it seems to me that they're retaliating in, in quite a smart way. I'm thinking of our Fast Flex, which Wells Fargo has just recently launched. Of course, Wells Fargo, 700 billion of customer deposits, a branch on just about every street corner. Is the threat posed by those Me Too 
services more serious than those that um, came up against Napster a decade ago. Well, here's how I think about that. I'll tell you a little story. I don't know, maybe it was about seven or eight years ago. We were thinking about partnering with a very, very large financial institution, a name that everybody would recognize. And, was this you at Can Capital? Um, at Can Capital and, and, and a name that everybody would recognize. And you know, anytime you think about partnering or, or launching a pilot, you have to think about, okay, well, what will happen if we help create a competitor? And there was a lot of very robust dialogue around that. And we ultimately concluded that if we all believe that the size of the market is as large as it is, there's plenty of business to go around. And the second thing is, and, and, and this was true then and it's true now, our biggest competitor is awareness. And so we used to have a rule of thumb that only about 50% of small businesses know they could access capital online and or, or an alternative to their bank, be it online or otherwise. And of those 50%, only 50% actually do. Mm -hmm. So there's real value in the fact that household names are making capital available in ways that are non-traditional mm -hmm. and are innovative. And so for me, when I hear about folks like Wells and others making really smart decisions, I think that's great. And I think it's great because I think it's going to raise awareness. I think it's great because there are going to be other banks who say, you know, rather than building it, we might want to buy it or partner with it, which... Is that Creates. similar to, to J.P. Morgan's deal with OnDeck? That's right, of yours? which is a great opportunity for us. And just finally, some of the big consumer-focused guys like Avant and Prosper Lending Club talking um, or indicating reductions in volumes of about 40% this year. So those forces aren't applying to you? No, no. You know, here's a really interesting thing. We are definitely going through what I think we would all say is a correction. And it's a capital correction. It's a liquidity correction. Every capital or liquidity correction most of the ones that I'm used to seeing are preceded by a credit correction. And that's not the case here. You know, there was a period of time, and I'm going to make up the number, two years ago, maybe for every $1 of loan platforms were able to originate, there were 6 or $7 of lendable dollars. You know, that's a pretty feisty environment. Today, depending upon who you talk to, for various reasons, that number could be anywhere from $0.50 cents to $1.50. And I don't think that lenders and investors to the space are disappearing. I think that some of the hotter money has left, and folks should have expected that. But I also think that smarter money is coming into the space because when they look at the fundamentals, look at the securitizations, look at the pools, you're getting a pretty good return. And so if you really want to be smart and disciplined about maybe even doing your own credit analysis, you could actually get very attractive returns positive note to end on. Thank you very much, Glenn Goldman. My pleasure. Thank you as well. That's it for this week. All that's left to do is thank our participants, Laura, Emma and Caroline in London, Ben in New York, and our guests, Eric Lenders and Glenn Goldman. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon in London and Amy Keane in New York. Until next week, goodbye. Hold up. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. 